Very Bad Wizards is a podcast with a philosopher, my dad, and a psychologist, Dave Pizarro, having an informal discussion about issues in science and ethics. Please note that the discussion contains bad words that I'm not allowed to say, and knowing my dad, some very inappropriate jokes. Pain or damage don't end the world. The world ends when you're dead. Until then, you got more punishment in store. Stand it like a man and give some back. The great end. Welcome to Very Bad Wizards. I'm Tamler Summers from the University of Houston. Dave, I've got a ton of anger to work through on this episode. So can you let your Kantian self out today so I have a good, <laughs> have a good outlet for it? Like, I don't want to pre- take it out on my family. You know what I mean? I, you know, I actually pre-committed earlier when, it, when we were talking about uh, last night we had a conversation about about recording today and I said, you know, I'm, I'm going to go out of my way to disagree with you no matter what. This is before even like preparing. What I'm quote preparing. <laughs> yeah, but and luckily though, uh, I I don't think I'll have to make an effort this time. Really? Yeah, uh, yeah. You prepare to be surprised. <laughs> okay. I'm, uh, uh, it's not going to be Kantian, whatever the fuck that means. Well, let's talk about that in a sec. But for today's topic, we were trying to work out a time with Josh Green, and we could just never get our schedules aligned. And so he will be on soon. We're also going to have Paul Bloom on very soon. And we actually haven't haven't uh, picked a firm topic for Paul Bloom, so if, but he's just fun to have on. So if anybody has suggestions. We had an uh, email debate, Paul and I, on, on the, just the role of videos in the Ray Rice case and the, this new right. war that we're getting into that I think would be kind of interesting although we've gone over that ground with him before but but not only that i think i think something else like a movie or or who knows well teaching teaching that's right around yeah yeah in fact his coursera course we picked up listeners so from from his Coursera. where have they gone (laughs) <laughs> here he just needs to teach another one <laughs> he's the fuckers again so anyway here we were we we're trying to do this thing every other monday both of us are going through some shit right now right. um with family but, and stuff like that we've committed to ritual suicide if we don't get it out of everyone <laughs> shame is the most powerful motivator if there's one thing i've learned from all my from all my honor research. It's... Uh, yes. So we asked for some ideas on Facebook. Got a bunch of good ones. So thank you for all of those ideas. And we're gonna we're gonna do one of them. This uh, anti-nativism. Natalism. Natalism. Yes, because anti-nativism would probably be some form of empiricism. But you're the philosopher, so I don't need to explain that to you. <laughs> Uh, I know, and it's eleven in the morning, so you can't be drunk yet. No, so. not yet, not at all. <laughs> or right. maybe you're just drunk still. <laughs> no, I go to bed early. You know, yeah. I gotta get a daughter to get to school and all that. You know, if only you had not had one. 
if only I'd read Benatar's stuff before, I would have I would have known how morally reprehensible we both were, both of us. That's right. For, That's it's not just me. So a bunch of other good ideas. Before we get into those, we want to thank you guys all for your support. You can support us on verybadwizards.com on the support page by clicking the Amazon link or by PayPaling us um, directly. We really appreciate all the people who have done that. You can also like us on Facebook and rate us on iTunes. I, I'm very proud of our iTunes record, except for we recently got a, what we can't tell if it's a tongue-in-cheek one-star review. <laughs> I think it was tongue-in-cheek. But I, it, I, I honestly, like, if I had to bet my life <laughs> whether it was tongue-in-cheek or they really didn't like the podcast, I'm not sure which way I would go. The only thing that bugs me is that it's so cool to have one. You shouldn't have dogs. Charlie! <laughs> God damn it. Yeah, I I actually uh, am not am not sure either. All I know is I don't mind the one-star review. Although having one one-star review that was just clearly sincere and hated us. Repugnant. Just feel, it, it, repugnant. It felt better than two. Like two just feels. I urge our listeners to go and tell us whether that's sincere, they don't like the <laughs> podcast, or whether they do like the podcast but thought it was funny to give us a one-star review. Because it, yeah. it could really be either of those. Thanks for all the support. A couple ideas. So we're going to talk about this antinatalism thing. And, and actually, we're putting all those ideas in the file. And yeah. we hope to get to a lot of them. But one of them that somebody brought up is just Kant. <laughs> And while we definitely don't have time before antinatalism to talk about Kant and the reasons for my hostility towards Kant, at least. And by extension, me somehow. <laughs> well, right. That's that's the part that I think we could we, we could talk about why I say that you have a Kantian side. Right. Because, you know, you're. It can mean a lot. That could that could that could mean I'm, I'm opposed to masturbation. Right. Which I know is true. Again, I'm not a Kant scholar. I just hate him irrationally. <laughs> I'm, because I'm you, right. Because you haven't read him in the original beautiful German. <laughs> that must be <laughs> such a beautiful writer. He just hasn't found his translator. The, here's, here, here are the different aspects of, the, of you that are Kantian. Number one, you have a kind of consistency fetish. Like, everybody has to be treated the same way. That's like your number one goal is that everyone is treated consistently part of your kind of rationalist streak where if people are treated in inconsistently it just sort of offends your sense of logic and, yes yeah uh, it's not even it's not even really about treatment you know this is one of your the big source of our disagreement about restorative justice is that somebody could have the same culpability but get a different punishment and maybe that's my rationalism but it it also really it, it, that part really is motivated by the fact that inconsistency so often shits on the, the like less fortunate. Yeah, and so and and there we're not in disagreement. I thought you were just ab admitting just anti-egalitarianism and racism. Like finally, <laughs> like, <laughs> finally, finally just just coming out and saying explicitly. <laughs> exactly. No, no, no. But I have nothing and in, in principle against inconsistent punishments. So but really, it's it's not the case that you just don't think that it's inconsistent. It is the case that you are not bothered by what you would admit is inconsistency. Right. Exactly. Yeah. Number two. Is it weird to be that wrong about something? I don't, I don't know what that must feel like. <laughs> It's, you get used to it. 
number two, this only comes out every so often, but you have this uh, and a kind of instinctive distrust of emotions. But but often you don't. Like often we're on exactly the same side against the same people who are mm. anti-sentimentalists and. Uh, right. But every once in a while, and it's not just about disgust, although it often is, you think that you have more of a mistrust of emotions leading to moral judgments than I think is warranted. And that's your Kantianism just struggling with your better, your better this side. Is, I, mean, I mean, this is yeah. where sort of uh, I wouldn't attribute my views to Kant necessarily, but rather to both of us perceiving the truth <laughs> accurately. <laughs> um, but neither of us really ever talked too much about our, our own papers. But uh, the very first paper that I ever wrote in grad school and, and published was a sort of defense of the emotions, in, but only in the sense that, that they, they motivate moral reasoning. Uh, and that they, but I do strongly believe sort of in the way that you build character you you train your emotions to not lead you astray with spurious or capricious judgment like and i really do i really do believe that i i i think that is a deep source of disagreement between you and me like what well I, but it's a, it's a difference of degree because i agree that emotions can be distorting we have the same general attitude about the role of the emotions i think as sort of necessary for motivating morality in the first place and as uh, but they can definitely also be distorting it's just that there are there are cases where i think they're less distorting than you do and i think they're actually more important and i'll give you an example because this is i think the most kantian thing that you ever said as far as <laughs> i mean and, I, and i'm setting aside your weird your implicit appeal to the noumenal self in that uh <laughs> In, in, in Very Bad Wizards 45, the, the one on boys and girls and toys and stuff. So I'm just setting that aside as like a, like you had some sort of like a tumor or something like that. That, that, that's, I, I think I will never understand why my position was Kantian in that sense. But yes, go on. But the most Kantian thing you've ever said, and this highlights our disagreement, I think, at the, at, in, the, in the most specific way. So there, you remember there was that senator, I have no idea what his name was, but he changed his mind about oh, yeah, same-sex yeah, yeah, marriage. Yeah, yeah cuz of his cuz of his son. Cuz his son. Yeah. Cuz yeah. his son was gay. I I welcomed that. I thought that's great. Look, that's what he needed. He needed to actually see, you know, what it means to be gay and to have people have this attitudes and now he's changed his position. He's changed his position to what I think is the 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 morally correct position. And I had no problem with the fact that 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 was why he did it, because that was clearly necessary. But you were outraged. You still yeah, weren't mean, satisfied. It was like, I still have to prove my moral superiority because he didn't he didn't, <laughs> he didn't he didn't come to the position for the right reasons. And so he doesn't get to have the moral worth. That was so Kantian. Yeah. And I and I'll stick to my guns here. It, it's not that it isn't a good thing that he changed his position because he's now. Like now he's going to do less harmful things to to gay people and to humanity in general. But it is akin to like, I don't see how you can't catch the intuition that it's like being like like for slavery until you birth a biracial child. 
Like it's just, it's just, it's it's sad and it's tragic that that's the what took you to reach what ought to be a pretty fucking obvious moral position. Yeah, I mean, look, uh, but this is that's how that's how morality works. Is that? Well, I know, but I don't have to like that. That's how morality. Like it could right. also work by putting Prozac in the water supply. Like people could be like, but I don't think that's pra- praiseworthy. Right, like I don't, like I don't think that like drugging people. What, like why? Why do you think you have such enlightened beliefs about like wh- where do you think you got those? Did you just sit down when you were twelve years old and just reason your way to what was the fairest way of dealing with society? No, but it doesn't no. have, but, we all no, but have our stories about this. Yeah, yeah, but but that's a, that's a ridiculous argument for like essentially concluding that there there is no better or worse way like that just because just because there's some sort of continuum of like moral luck that arrive that you know like that i'm born in this century certainly has like huge amount of sway over what my moral positions are but that doesn't mean that it is akin to like dr- getting drugged and or hypnotized into believing something is right or wrong right so in that continuum of shit like in that continuum of of reasons for arriving in a moral position i think that it's just sort of there is so much else that you sort of are responsible for knowing nowadays it's like uh uh, you know all the reason that i believe that the the world is that the earth is spherical is certainly (laughs) like some unfortunate accident that i was born in a in a time and place where we know that 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 to be true but uh had I continued to ignore that and only had my mind changed uh, because of some sort of like weird event in my life, like that the whole time I was alive, I <laughs> continued to reject that view. I just think that that's. But you don't know what this guy's history was. You don't know what. I don't all, need to know it. Things... You know, I don't need to know what his history was to think that there is plenty of information, good reason in modern society to have especially in the position of leadership over an entire american society to to like have seriously questioned that moral position and it's it's akin to you saying that you don't hold anybody blameworthy for being who would be a senator now and be like rabidly anti anti-gay i i it's it's not akin to me saying that because this guy this guy changed his mind and you admit that there's a fair amount uh if not it's not entirely due to moral luck that we come to the positions that we hold but here's the thing and this is is not no no no, that's not what that's not what i'm saying i'm saying that there is a huge amount of moral luck that that will lead us to believe anything that we believe but that doesn't mean that there is not some sort of continuum where you hold people responsible for acquiring the right facts and the right beliefs given the information. But, but, but this is the thing. He did did acquire the right information and the right facts, and still, this is the thing. I, and I don't, like, and I don't attribute, like, to, I don't attribute this to you. This is your Kantianism, but I attribute <laughs> this to a lot of the other freaking people uh, on Facebook who are all outraged about this. It's... Even when they come to the right view, I still have to prove my moral superiority. No, you're attributing a motivation to people who have an opposing view. Like that's they don't have an opposing. That's the worst. We're we're agreeing. We're now in agreement with that guy, with that senator. No, no, I'm saying that that these people on Facebook and 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 I have a view that it is more morally praiseworthy to 
be driven to a moral conclusion based on information that isn't so completely idiosyncratic like that. So, but in in but, how, but it's always in, but idiosyncratic. In, like, but in you... rejecting in rejecting our view, all you're doing is accusing us of doing this out of some need for moral superiority. No, I I, when just, I, I don't. I, under, I said you, explicitly that you're not. I don't. I attribute that to some people, but not you. You, right, I attribute it to this unfortunate Kantian part of your soul. I mean, that's not an argument. That's like a trip. It's like me attributing it to some unfortunate no, no, no. humanism. Let like, me ask you. Yeah, well, I'm happy to embrace that. Let me ask you this: what What would be the way that you would like? What would you have praised him for? It's not about him, but like it, or it's, anybody. It's, what's the it's best? About, what's the good way to come to the conclusion that it, we should allow be, same sex marriage? The the better way to come to the conclusion uh, about something like equal rights is to at some moment realize that there are a multitude of people who are suffering because of your views and not to be only driven because of your, uh, because of this intense bonding that you have with offspring. That is, it's not, I, I don't see why this is so controversial. It's, it's not if you're a Kantian. It, it's not, it's not as if I don't, prefer a world in which people arrive at the moral what i think are the morally right conclusions by any means necessary but it's weird to say that that all of those ways are equivalent like that no but what i it's it i just want to know so so give so specifically you you sit there and you think wait a minute these people are just like me and i have no right to deprive them of of a certain right that they that I am currently in favor let's, of depriving. Let's even get let's even get to a, like a blatantly anti-Kantian, purely sentimentalist reason. Yeah. So the fact that it is so obvious that people suffer immensely because of these views, that just the sheer being moved by the emotion that is a result of observing other people's suffering, I think you have to be completely, willfully ignoring that suffering in a way that anybody should, let alone somebody who is over I, I, all I, of I don't think I don't think that he viewed before that same-sex couples were suffering greatly. I you know, know like that he didn't from see not that. being able to get married. Now, maybe no, I, I, that's like saying slaves. And it's were not suffering. that obvious, right? I mean, for a long time, nobody really thought that. Nobody was even pushing for it. Dick Cheney had a a, a, a gay daughter that he was, and he was always he was always very conflicted about you know same sex marriage, and you know, but but she never. There, it was. It's only recently that 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 the the, the, the idea that same sex couples are suffering from not being able to actually get married, that that became a big topic of conversation. It's amazingly fast how that happened. Yes, and, and, I, and I, 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 I do not think that it is reasonable that it took us so long to see the suffering, especially when, they, uh, uh, the, when the people themselves have the ability to communicate to you exactly how they're suffering. It, it, is, it is not an argument to me that, like, that society has been slow to pick up the cause. It is. It, he was especially slow, and the the fact that it required his son to come out of the closet for him to change his position is, I think, just extraordinarily unfortunate. It, it would be akin to tracks I, I from think his that, moral wor- praiseworthiness. You know what? What it is? It's essentially like a, a view about epistemology, not about praiseworthiness. It's like it's sort of like the praise that you would get for uh, being open to the fact that the world is round, right? 
you are an unreliable moral judge, especially in a position of leadership, if you are so slow to realize that your beliefs are actually morally harm, harming others. Yeah, I guess I just think that's, you know, this is my, this might be a rhetorical disagreement. I just think that's the wrong attitude to have when somebody comes to a certain position is to start. You no, no, Nobody had ever heard of this guy and, and probably even knew of his position except his constituents. And now all of a sudden here he comes in favor of same-sex marriage. He's telling you why and, and people are blaming him and getting mad at him. That just seems like the most the least sort of productive and the most self righteous like i don't know how it's any more self-righteous than you getting mad at everybody for holding a moral position that it is less praiseworthy right or that in some ways no, is no, tragic. No, no, no. you can hold the position but people were 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 making it very public their anger with this with this guy including you on some episode god knows when it was but i mean uh, if what you're opposed to is anger then then fine but like if what you're opposed to is my view that it is less sort of less of a good thing for someone to arrive at a moral position for those reasons then i don't think i I don't i I just don't get your argument right i mean if what you mean to say is that like you can condemn them but keep your condemnation private because what we want to do is sort of encourage more people to adopt this view by any means necessary that that's i think a perfectly reasonable position that that is like i I just think you have a higher opinion of how people arrive at their moral beliefs um, in general. I think we all arrive at our moral beliefs through a process that is that is somewhat like that. But, uh, but you don't think that there is a difference in degree in in the sense that there are some ways that are uh, yeah i mean maybe i don't like i i like i'm trying i haven't thought about this because i thought we were going to talk about this for two minutes but like (laughs) um i might think that there is virtually no difference you know and this goes back to my old moral responsibility skepticism maybe but every enlightened position has a story that and that story traces back to factors beyond your control every non-enlightened position has a story and that traces back to factors beyond your control now i think when it comes to actions uh, that's where i now i guess hop off board with with the skepticism about responsibility view but this guy's actions now were the ones that people support so don't go and now dwell about the 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 it's, the, the, the origins of his belief because we all a, have a, suspect origins or at least no, suspect from no, the con- I, I mean, from the Kantian sense. But nobody's disagreeing that moral luck plays a huge role. The question is, do you believe that it it can play more or less of a role in the way that you acquire certain moral beliefs? Like, and if if what you're saying is that. Uh, that completely arbitrary reasons for choosing a moral belief are perfectly fine, then I guess the the reason that I'm suspicious, especially, and this is, I think, a key part about the my opinions about this, this senator or representative or whatever, um, is that I, I hold them to a, a pretty high standard when, when you're governing over the interests of the members of your constituency. First of all, if you hold members of Congress to a higher standard 
<laughs> than like the rest of the the United States citizens. I, like, how do you not just agree with Benatar and I, just kill your? No, I do. <laughs> I I am extraordinarily cynical about the truth of the matter, uh, but I can be. I can hold them to a higher standard. No. Yeah, I don't know. That's what like Woody Allen. There's a Woody Allen line. He's a politician. Uh, that's one <laughs> that's notch below child molester. Well, so at least we agree that he's disdainful. <laughs> uh, no, I. Yeah. Uh, right. Let's get let's uh, let's get to another thing that it sounds like you were signaling we might disagree about is the yeah. Benatar needleism argument. Let's take a quick break. Welcome back to Very Bad Wizards. All right, so today we chose to, to to talk about this particular view that has been recently espoused by a philosopher named David Benatar. I keep thinking Pat. <laughs> Maybe that just shows. Well, how they have a similar view, like a, that, <laughs> like hell is for children. Except, I guess his view is more that it's just for for children and everybody. And everybody. Uh, this was suggested by. Rob Sicka, right? Rob. Yeah, uh, he's pretty much our producer now. Rob Sicka, <laughs> Rob Brian Herb, a bunch of, and also a guy, uh, uh, Johannes or something on Facebook. I don't have it up right now because my internet is fucked. But um, the yeah, yeah. so so a bunch of people have been bugging us. I've been resistant to doing it because I have such a low opinion of this view, but. It really pisses you off. So, okay, so antinatalism is the view, and let, let's see if I do it justice, is just simply the view that life is uh, full of just pain and suffering, disproportionate to the amount of actual joy and pleasure, um, that it is immoral to bring another human being into the world. That is, to cause life when you can opt not to is the morally wrong position. Yes. The view comes from an old Jewish joke, which might be the Jewish joke, the platonic form of a Jewish joke, which is there are these two old men on a bench. So like already it's it's Jewish there. And one says to the other, you know, life is, is so hard. Sometimes I think it would have been better never to have been born. And the other guy says, yeah, sure, but who has such a luck? Maybe one in a thousand. <laughs> and and, uh, and that's the view, right? That it's better never to have been born. Um, yeah. And so, given that, we shouldn't procreate. We we did something that was morally wrong by having our children. Right. And so. Um... This isn't exactly a Jewish joke unless you consider the Old Testament to be a book of jokes. 
but this <laughs> this view is espoused by the author of Ecclesiastes, rumored to be King Solomon, says this very thing, right? He sees all the oppression that's done under the sun and the tears of the oppressed, and he thinks to himself uh, that the dead are happier than the living who are still alive, um, but better than both is one who has never been born at all because they've never seen the evil that's under the sun, right? So this is, I think, an old view, and I guess it's it's been espoused by others, Schopenhauer, Benatar is a South African philosopher who wrote a book called Better Never to Have Been Born, I think. So, I mean, you know, there's the the funny metaphysical thing uh, that comes sort of from the joke and and from Ecclesiastes, who you say is rumored with like there's like a Twitter rumor or something to have been written by King Solomon. Exactly. It's rumored. You know, you know it's, it's actually TMZ funny. is going to put out like it's going <laughs> That's not right. that's not King Solomon's real yeah. Twitter account. <laughs> it's it's, it's right. at the real King Solomon, not at King Solomon. Um, uh, so. <laughs> let me say because this will be the net last nice thing I say about Benatar and this view that I have nothing personal against him. Um, I've never met him. I've never interacted with him, and I hear that he's a very nice guy. Sean Nichols who is fairly misanthropic, I think it's fair to say, uh, normally, uh, says he's a great guy. So my only issue is with this argument and the views. I just want right. to like, it's not, disclaim. It's not your rampant, it's not your yeah. rampant anti-South yeah. African philosopher bias. So you hold him morally responsible for, for making the wrong arguments. Um, uh, no, I'm sure there's a good... Okay. <laughs> uh, Sad. Okay, so so let's get to the. Okay, let me just say, I find this position that it is so all things being equal, not existing is preferable to existing in this. You know, granted this weird sense of like whose whose preferences are being maximized. Um, I I you know. So I have a kid, and what I'll admit from the get-go is that I responsive to these beliefs in my life. I don't like. I find it hard to act on this by like refusing to have kids. But I will say that I am, in one sense, uh, being very consistent and extraordinarily morally praiseworthy because of all of the kids I haven't had. Like <laughs> the, the p- potential children, uh, yeah. I've had a f- mere fraction. A mere fra- this is restraint. This is, uh, you know, it's like having. It's you, like, you're talking about all those women that you've talked into having abortions. <laughs> no, I'm talking about these sort of the, the consumption of condoms. But you know, most of this is due to to just not having been able to have sex for so long in my life. Um, but but so I I I refuse to be condemned for having had one child when right. really it's like I should be praised for not having had tons of children. Uh, so in that sense, but but I think this is reasonable. But I want to hear what, why you think it's so it's such a poor argument. Okay, you know I I posted a, a link to one of his papers that's since been taken down, and we're going to try to find. Uh, a way to get it back up again so that we can show it to people. But 
I found it um, really, I, I, it, it infuriated me, and, and not now where I have just a lot of anger in, in general to get out, like <laughs> at a time where I assume I was fairly cheerful because I, I, you know, that's mostly my condition. And, and, I, and I was so, and I ripped into it so hard that somebody said, um, who I don't know, like, I, you know, I, I don't know you, I've seen your work, I've never seen you be so uncharitable to a few. <laughs> like, I, like, normally you're, you seem like you're, you know, you're willing to entertain a lot of things, and even when you disagree, I've never seen you engage in so many ad hominems, I've never, and I'll tell you why, like, I think... First of all, I find the conclu- I, I find it very a, a very poor argument. Like I don't think the premises lead to the conclusion. I, I think it's invalid. I think the premises are implausible on their own. I also think I also hate the way he presents the argument, and it, it, it's it's it has a it has a built-in sort of immunity to criticism because it relies on the idea that of course we're going to be against it because we have children or we're alive or we suffer from this optimism bias that we'll talk about. And so our very disagreement with the argument is more evidence that he's right. It's not quite unfalsifiable, but it's more this built-in sort of immunity to criticism that he plays up, that he definitely plays up. But the reason I've never wanted to discuss it is because almost everybody agrees with me on this. Like, it's not a very popular position, and I don't like to be on the bandwagon, and I don't like to pile on. I'll try to give it the best shot that that that, that we can give it. I, I take it there are two main main premises that we should talk about. The first is the asymmetry part, and the second is the optimism bias. Right, and in, and in fact, I actually am probably in agreement with, with you that the optimism bias part uh, is is sort of ridiculous, but uh, so we'll but talk about that's crucial. That, but... If we don't, if you don't have that, then I don't think you get... I'm willing to accept that it might be defeated if it rests too much on on that argument. So the asymmetry part is is this just view that bad is stronger than good. Right. Well, the asymmetry. No, here's how I read the asymmetry. It's a little more complicated. That uh, it, it's that the presence of pain is bad if you bring a kid into the world. Do you do something wrong if if they if they suffer an, a miserable life? It's good if they have a pleasurable life. So you've done something good if they have a pleasurable life. Now, if you don't bring them in. However, if you don't bring them into the world, if they have a painful, if they would have had a painful life, you've done something good. But it's not bad to deprive them of the pleasure that they would have had because they don't exist. It's not it's not bad to deprive something that doesn't exist of pleasure. Right. Right. And so I guess the idea is that you 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 really have to be confident like you have to have it's not just like it's 50 it has to be 5149 like you have to be really confident that there's more pres, presence of pleasure than pain because you're not doing anything bad by depriving the person who doesn't exist uh, of pleasure assuming they would have had a good life but you're doing something morally wrong if you bring them into existence and they have a, a life not worth living right and and this is sort of uh coupled together with uh, a further claim that just life is 
sense is such that it is usually more pain than pleasure for all, for a variety of reasons. Right. right. So it's, you, it's a very strong conclusion. It's not that most people shouldn't have kids. It's that no life is worth living. Now, it's not like it's in principle, I guess, not impossible. But um, we but but in the end, so far, no life is worth living. Right. But, you know, even even if it if it is a sort of an overwhelming majority argument, I could I could grant the conclusion that it is wrong to take a, you know, a gamble that 98 percent chance of like suffering overwhelming pleasure is not the kind of chances you would want to take if that if the potential for harm is so great. Right. right. So so I don't know how we should talk about it because he does hold the stronger view, which I find just and you say so tell me what you find to be well so, plausible so but about but that. I want to distinguish between the, the that's the strong conclusion and the 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 need for the strong premise that every single life is suffering outweighs pleasure. Because I think that you can have just a sort of statistical argument that most human life is is uh, pain outweighs or suffering outweighs pleasure and then conclude that therefore nobody ought to have kids um right so you could well, say that it is just not it's like playing russian roulette and it's just it's it's wrong to roll the dice when the the consequences could be so drastically bad but that's only if there's not like a class of people that can be confident that they will be give birth to somebody that is going to right be glad that they were born um so what if there were or, a class no, of people well, like this is clearly possible in principle right like let's say there was a group of people maybe it's people who grew up in boston who who are irish scotch descent and they always the the on balance the people are happy that they lived their lives and they got more pleasure out of it than pain, then they should be able to have kids, right? Yeah, but but that that does rest on on the degree which with which we could ever have that certainty. And I actually think there's no good reason to think anybody could ever have that certainty, right? So the, no, no, like, no, but it doesn't have to be certainty. Or like this is what I don't totally get. No, How no, much confidence right. do you have to have? Right. If it relies on a hundred percent certainty, that then I think that that is too high a burden for his argument. But it matters. The odds matter. You're right. The odds matter. The question is, given the asymmetry argument, to what extent do the does that convince you that the odds has have to be really high that the person will unbalance have a good life over a bad life? I, so I, I'm convinced because of really because of the severity of what a bad life might entail more than just the sort of overall what the overall proportion of pleasure to pain might be in any given individual. That is, so essentially, no, no, no but you're like, missing my, my my point is that the asymmetry argument is pointing to an asymmetry between. It's not bad to deprive something that doesn't exist of a pleasurable life, and it, but it is bad. So how much does that 
shift your view towards you have to be extra confident, 80% confident, whatever, 75% confident instead of just 51% confident. How much does the does the asymmetry aspect shift your view? The asymmetry part where it is not an, um, a bad thing to deprive a non-existent thing of pleasure, um, whereas it is it is bad to to introduce suffering uh that that part i find convincing right like i i really am convinced that that me not giving cake to a stranger in minnesota is not a a, a immoral act on my part right like let alone somebody who does not exist at all being like that is that is convincing to me that it is not immoral to to fail to cause the existence of something that might might be experiencing pleasure i i don't see how that could possibly be wrong and if it were wrong then it would be our moral duty to be just pumping out kids like crazy what i think the crucial part is the ratio of so what are the chances that if i do give birth and i cause somebody to come into existence there's two things what are the chances that the balance will be bad over good and the other is what exactly will be that mix of bad over good? And so I, I'm not sure what you're asking, whether... What, what whether, I'm asking what is how odds... much does that of asymmetry part, how much does it affect whatever the line is that you're going to need in order to justify having kids? How much does the asymmetry push the line towards you have to be more confident like, I, I, I don't know how to express it any more clearly than that. To what extent, like, what if there was no asymmetry argument at all and the question was just, are lives worth living or not? Would your, would your view on his conclusion change at all? It would be weakened. It, it would be weakened in the sense that, so wh- one version of what you're asking is if the asymmetry doesn't exist because it is in fact harmful to prevent a non-existent creature from experiencing potential pleasure then that would sway me into being less sure about whether I'm doing the right thing by not having a kid, for sure. That's the less compelling part to me. The more compelling part is the question that you just asked, whether is on the whole, is life worth living? Um, there, are two, there are two, I think, pieces to this argument. The first is that life is just stacked such that, that bad shit will always overwhelm good shit. So pleasures are short-lived, um, whereas suffering can easily be long, getting like this, the the difference between sort of neutral and suffering is subjectively probably way worse than the difference between neutral and pleasure. He lists a whole bunch of arguments for this sort of bad being overwhelming of good, even in instances where you might think I had a great birthday this year, but that's like compared to he's like points out things like chronic pain. People don't suffer from chronic pleasure, but lots of them suffer from chronic pain. Okay, let's take that. Let's take that premise, right? Uh, I, I just disagree with that. Like, like, what do you think chronic pain is? It's like, so let's say I have chronic pain in my back, which I had for a while. But I also had very good feelings about my job and my family and, you know, when my daughter just coming home. Like, that, that was just as chronic as my back pain. Um, it's not like my I was constantly focused on the pain in my back. It was just something that was there in the same way that thoughts of that pleasurable thoughts were there. I, I, I don't I don't see any difference in the chronic 
nature of those things. I, you know, I guess here the argument is that like there is a a way in which sort of you know the the pleasure that you're describing from reflecting upon your family and, and your job is not like the sensory experience of of chronic pain in that you are not consistently getting this this sort of right you have to sort of sit and reflect about how good your life is you don't have to you know that's not true think of flow flow you don't you're not reflecting about how good life is you just feel good when you're in a flow Wait, or when you're flow, on ecstasy is, is, is flow a kind of, i was gonna say is flow a kind of marijuana that you've been smoking lately <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, you know but but flow again is short-lived com- comparatively right so it's i mean I think what it sounds like what you're arguing is that the pleasures are deeper and they outweigh the scent, like the low level sensory. No, I'm saying that they're not any less or more chronic like back pain. He makes it described as if all we do is walk around just focused on our back and that that, like you, 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 it, 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 it sucks to have a back problem, but you're not constantly focused on it any more than you're not constantly focused on for the good things that are going on in your life. Like, I just don't, the like, his argument, it depends on there's a chronic pain, but there's no chronic pleasures, and I think that's not true. There are chronic pleasures in the same way that there are chronic pains, especially something I, like back pain or toothaches or whatever, the, the, all these I, examples you know, that you do. I've had, so I've had an abscess tooth in, in a way that was so painful so consistently that... I seriously thought to myself, if this was the rest of my life, I would prefer not to live. Yeah, and it is no, rare I that I've ever had that consistent, like, days long of constant throbbing of pleasure. Fine. Where... That, okay, you're right. In, in, rare, in, in rare cases, and it is rare, thankfully, because I had that, too, with my freaking ankle. Um, where I was like, this is, I wouldn't want to live if this was the rest of my life. But that's happened once or twice in my entire life. I am 44 years old. I'm old, as you never tire of pointing out in every. I'm so much older. I'm still 38. Yeah, right. Um, I I turn 39 tomorrow. Thank you. Happy birthday. But, like, I think that's enough for his argument. I think that just the fact that, that you've had two experiences of the sort of pain that leads you to question the value of life is the point that he's making. I mean, so what he's saying is that it's rare that you have a pleasure okay, that lasts fine. that long, right? So now you couple that with the fact that 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 now now you can also fill your life with with a, a variety of momentary pains may not be chronic, but that nonetheless, uh, you know, people. I think experience as stronger than the the equivalent opposite pleasure. There is a way yep. in which there is the, there is this sort of negativity bias that is rampant in everything we know about how humans make their judgments about their experiences. Where you know there is someone stealing fifty bucks is much is judged as much worse than someone giving fifty dollars to somebody. And and I think that that negative experiences are like that they sort of overwhelm you know if you had one horrible experience in your vacation on your vacation you are likely to judge 
that the vacation was a bad one, despite the fact that you might have had No, that's the opposite of what he says. I thought we always remember things, the optimism biases, we remember things as better than they were. Well, so this is, I think you're right to point out, this is is a a weird, I think it's a weird, the optimism thing is a weird argument because, and and I think it's wrong for, for a couple of reasons, but sticking to the bad is stronger than good part so I think what he's saying, at least to be fair to him, is that um, human beings, the accurate description of their their uh, subjective experience is that the bad dominates over the good. Let's read a couple things that he says about it. So one can lose a limb or an eye in a few seconds, whereas gaining mobility or sight where it is possible at all never occurs so rapidly, effortlessly, or completely. As if... Just, mo- you know, like everybody is constantly at risk of losing a limb or an eye. <laughs> now, of course, some people are, but this but this is argument is supposed to uh, apply to everybody. And that's then he says there are various reasons why there is more unfulfillment than fulfillment. First, many desires are never fulfilled. Second, even when desires are fulfilled, this usually occurs only after the exercise of effort. This means that there is a period of time in which the desire is not yet fulfilled. And, and, and you know, the, that's so unbearable. Finally, right. when desires are eventually fulfilled, the satisfaction is typically only transitory. So, you know, this is like maybe a hedonistic treadmill thing. You, you, you want something, and then you, but then you get it, and then you just want the next step. You're not even right. satisfied with what you get it. Satisfied desires give ways. Now listen to this. People tend to forget how much of their lives are spent tired, hungry, thirsty and pain and being either too hot or too cold or in need of voiding their bladders and bowels. <laughs> this is it's like, it's evil to have to go to the bathroom. I mean, uh, uh, you know, the pleasure with which people express, I was talking about for some reason in my intro psych course, when I was lecturing, I was talking about this study that measured um, delay in which it took men to start their urine stream in in the bathroom. I won't get into why I was talking about that. But then I was talking about like how weird it is when you're standing next to someone in the urinal and they there's sort of like a oh, like they let out this moan of right. pleasure when they start peeing. Yeah. Um, so, <laughs> so that's what I thought of. And in fact, in fact, going to the bathroom. Uh, the re- the relief might very well be worth the absolutely, <laughs> or taking like a really good shit, like a just a just one of those great like classic Hall of Fame dumps. I had like, a that's friend. A- I had a friend who took ecstasy. He he. This was like when I, I think I was in college and. Uh, this was a high school friend and I came home and he was talking about like how he had just been recently trying ecstasy and how great it was. But like the most pleasurable thing he had ever experienced in life was taking a shit on ecstasy. <laughs> That's just like... He was describing it as, as if it was like pure heaven. Like this is what, this is what heaven would be composed of. Like a series of experiences of shit taking in heaven um, yeah. uh, on ecstasy. Uh, so, yeah, he's like listing that. a bunch of shit that is is a crock. But here's what I don't disagree with, that um, throughout human history, most people have lived pretty fucking miserable lives. And that if you, on average, the, the human being on average, like the experiences of suffering that they go through. I mean, and think about this, like imagine your daughter experiencing just 
even for a week, just sheer just misery and unhappiness at, at some experience that she had, like somebody, uh, you know, somebody broke her heart or or yeah. somebody just really oh, awesome. that, right. And and that that I think what compels me is that I really does seem to me that those experiences outweigh the collection of good experiences that you might have um that if you're doing the calculus that i i don't know man it's you really think that i'm surprised i mean i know we're both i mean honestly this is the time where i think for both of us certainly for me i'm gonna be most sympathetic we're both dealing with end of life issues with family right and um and this question about whether you know life is worth living given this situation is it's a lot more tangible than in than than in some sort of philosophical argument but like i i i i think that like i i i think that starts only when you have some really debilitating disease like getting your heart broken getting your yeah it sucks it's awful it's horrible and when it happens to eliza I'm going to be more miserable than she will be. But it's I will never regret that I brought her into existence just because this has happened. Well, but you may think it unfair, but I think it's actually a critical part of the argument that, like, of course, for instance, I don't want to end my life. Like, in fact, I am the opposite. I, I embrace, you know, so, like, and I value the life that I have and my daughter has. In it. But that is that, that is because it's already there. I think that, you know, sometimes I reflect like, um, you know, you, you'll probably be able to relate to this even more than the kids. Like uh, when, you know, I had to put my dog down uh, because yeah. she got yeah. a tumor. I, I I have been prevented in large part from getting another dog because it is just it's like getting a ticket at the deli and waiting for 10 years and getting just like you know stabbed rather than getting a sandwich it's like you you are clocking in and counting down to a absolute moment of misery that i think sometimes i wonder but whether on it's balance, worth having the, a dog. The, the joy of having the dog like like look i nobody and anybody who knows me knows this is true nobody loved like i like i loved my dog tests and even my new dogs I ha- like she happened to go through her end of life thing on a trip when I was driving from Houston to D.C. And I drove her as she was dying, like through the night, like for like 36 hours straight and took her to various vets on the road and finally got to D.C. And they said she's got to like it was the worst thing that, you know, it's it, it's one of the worst things that that's ever happened to me. It's in the right. top 10 worst experiences that I had. But at right. no point, I believe I, that the, your, the inter, last... your interviews, your interviews at, at APA. I, no, there was, there was, yeah, there was an interview at the APA that was worse. No, it was a smoker. It was a smoker experience at the APA. But, but, uh, but at no point was I, was I, did it ever occur to me that it would have been better to not have her? She gave me so much joy. She had so much joy. 
Like she gave my 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 like my wife was just I mean also deeply in love with her the but uh, Eliza who ne- didn't get to experience her in full bloom but you know was still got to you know she was like six or something when this happened so like every it's it's like yeah it sucks there are parts of life that are horrible and I think we're on the lucky side of it for the uh, unquestionably but the idea that these horrible things outweigh all the joy. I, I can't relate to that at all. Like, I think that's insane. I think that's crazy. Uh, so you're not, it's, you're not at all more reluctant to, to get a, a, a dog after having, no, we've got more dogs. I mean, one of them followed us home. I, maybe I'm just more sensitive. <laughs> I found the pain so aversive that, uh, that it really gave me pause about getting another dog because I thought like, I don't like that. It but it's also so... not about you, right? It's about the dog. Did you think that it no, was no, wrong no. to bring the dog into existence? No. It's not about this you. Is not, no, it is. It is about me. This is, I'm, I'm using this example as, you're right that, it, that I'm sort of like combining these two. But I, I really mean that, uh, that the experience of pleasure in owning a dog was outweighed by the experience of pain at losing the dog. Right. So t- 10 years of just joy. Um, I, you know, that's look, so, I mean, I, I, I'm I, so surprised to hear you. I'm not I'm not convinced. It's just that I don't find it on the face of it. Just patently absurd. Right. And yeah. so there is some calculus there where I could say, like, well, what if it was two years of pleasure and a really shitty sort of a horrible, you know, you get to see their brains splattered by getting run over by a car or something, you know. Like it, it to no, me. It's worse it, when they. It's a long, drawn out. Yeah, or thing. that, right? So, uh, yeah. so, but, but I think that that there is that if you're if you're trying to balance the equation, it is not that the week of of suffering and putting them down is equivalent to that week of of, of sort of hanging out at the park on vacation. Right? I think that it is. It is no, very but, much it's not, like a but it's not. But it's not a week years. versus another week. It's right. It's a week versus ten years. No, but that's what I'm saying. That's what I'm saying. Like it really is the case that the negativity, right? That that one argument for the strength of these negative experiences is that it requires years of pleasure to make up for a week of horrible pain. That's that's the point. Fine, but you get those years of pleasure. Like you might, you might, but now but now accrue the life experiences of pain, right? So I'm using that as a particular example to illustrate. The fact that the negative experience is so clearly required to, to balance the equation, it requires way more than a week of pleasurable experience. So now okay. when you, I, I'm, when you, I'm totally I, I will agree to that. I don't think it does anything for the conclusion. Right. Well, so now you have a regular life where, you know, suppose that you just add it all up and you have, uh, you know, 60 years of joy and one year of intense suffering. It is uh, to me a real uh, a real possibility that on average the accretion of of suffering makes it such that the balance is completely fucked in the direction of life being worse than it is good. So let me ask you this, right? Do you agree with me that up to a certain point in life, it's not even close? It's definitely better to have been alive until you get some sort of debilitating, horrible disease. I, no, I don't uh, think that's an. I don't think it's empirically true because, in fact, I, I mean, just talking I'm, I'm talking about for the for the people for 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 you, the you, your friends, 
your your the happier group of your friends. Probably by definition, the happier group of my friends. <laughs> um. No, but no, no. This is because again, he he's making a very strong claim, and and you know, I I don't want to argue about whether like specific people their lives aren't worth living. I just want to like all his, his for his argument for us even to be talking about it, it has to be true even of people who are on the fortunate side of the spectrum. I mean, part of his argument is that most people are not on the fortunate side of the spectrum. So I don't think it has What's a, right? Let's let's talk about this optimism bias thing because cuz so I'm I'm a very common I have a very common reaction which is I'm very happy that I was born. I would hate not to have been born. I think my life, while I've had some horrible episodes, uh, is on balance way worth living. Like, way worth living. Like, I I said, like, to me, it doesn't even seem close. Why am I wrong about it? Because I do believe that. Like, believe me that I believe that. Yeah. No, I do believe you. And I I think that that I would be, uh, like... It would be a misinterpretation of my view, and I think Benatar's view, to say that um, that what he's arguing is that uh, that this is the kind right. So deciding deciding to not exist is just way too difficult. I mean, we are just like once once something exists, it is ex- extraordinarily difficult to wish its non-existence, right? especially when it's you or no. You. But I'm grateful that I existed. I think that I am. Uh, I think that I have had. I mean, I don't understand what the bar is here, but uh, the I, my my idea is that if you could have given me a choice to not exist or to have existed, I would. It's a no-brainer for me. Like, uh, let's let's grant that, and then get to this optimism argument because what what the way that he gets around this is by saying, well, you're probably wrong. You're and not a good judge of how good you're. You're not a good judge, and and here's where I think there's just a crucial misstep, because okay, so what he's pointing to is all of this research in psychology that we are overly optimistic about a whole variety of things. So you um, you think that you're better than average on most good traits, um, uh, especially Americans. Uh, but um, right. you are biased toward remembering the good things you did and not the bad. You have this this process of adaptation where um, you get used to bad things. So he points to this this research on people who who become disabled and they're miserable at first, but then if you wait a sufficient amount of time, then their reports of subjective well-being kind of rise to the levels they were before. And so he says, you know, we have all of these mechanisms that seem to make us inaccurate in our, in our judgments about uh, of our abilities, our experiences. Now, that, I think, is a fair enough reporting of the the evidence out there, right? So it is true that we're overly optimistic in a whole bunch of ways. But this is what I don't, this is what I think is just ridiculous because in the cases where, say, suppose that I had just a shit ton of misery in my life and a handful of happy moments, and I, I completely, in, in, a, in a sort of motivated way, forget the bad parts and remember the good parts right and because of that i'm happier (laughs) like and so this is the it is not a claim about lying right it's not a claim that people are that people lie about their experiences 
but that's not the claim. The claim yeah. is actually that people are miscalibrated such that they do things like they forget the suffering, they forget the bad things. Right? If that's the claim, then uh, and the outcome is that people are happier, then this is right. a defeat. Just to me, this is defeating his argument. Right. Right. Exactly. Like this is like the whole point is that people, in fact, like if people are being honest and saying that they're happy despite all that bad shit then like i don't see why that isn't the primary source evidence of people being happy exactly so to be fair i haven't read the book although we did read the a, bu- a bunch of articles that he wrote not just that critics of him wrote and um the reason but, i didn't read the he, book does is he it, appeal to the does he appeal to that research about how disabled people get back yeah yeah. See, that's yeah. that's crazy. That's like that's the opposite of evidence for his view. No, I know, I know, right? Because right. there is, as you point out, this weird inconsistency. There's also all this research on negative experiences dominating. Though that's the kind of evidence. Like what you would want to say is that uh, people, in fact, are miserable because of the bad shit that happens. Bad. It would be better for him if we remembered the bad things. Support right. this argument, maybe not better. <laughs> but yeah, like exactly. It's like saying. Uh, you know what? Pain is so fucked up in particular because we don't feel it. It's just right. like, so it's like it's like as evidence the fact that anesthetics work as like evidence for like we're not ac- we're not accurate about our subjective representations of how much pain we're in because right. anesthetics work. Like and that's a, what it, yeah. yeah. Yeah, it, it this is a conflation of what accuracy means in this research because uh, if you're assessing someone's subjective happiness and you're certain that they're not lying then their assessment is exactly the thing that you're trying to measure. Now, (laughs) there's the other work on optimism bias that shows objective inaccuracy. So if you show, if if you ask people to, say, estimate how many free throws out of 10 they can make, right? Like, people will overshoot that. And there you have an objective measure. You say, like, well, people are inaccurate. And so what matters to me is what they actually, how they performed, not how they think they're performing but when it comes to subjective well-being how you think you're feeling constitutes <laughs> the subjective well-being exactly. like, it, it, you know it's so there's no oh, there's no there's no happiness over and above like your subjective experience like that's, that's right. just that's... what happiness is maybe there's you know like he has some platonic idea of happiness i don't get it i'm sure you know he answers this objection in his book Right. And, um, you know, well, I didn't read the book because having never read the book is better than reading it and then being disappointed. Here's a here. Here are a couple other problems I have with it. And and, and here's where I'm going to accuse him not of a conscious dishonesty, but of a sort of an underlying, maybe unconscious dishonesty. So I would think that his view should lead to um, a a strong strong reason to commit suicide, and B a strong reason to painlessly kill as many people as you can. But of right. course, he doesn't draw those conclusions. Now, in fact, he goes way he goes way out of his way to try to defeat to to try to defeat those things. And and this is where I think no, look, if everything that you've said is true, uh, then it seems like a now, now his answer for suicide is that you might cause other people grief. If I commit suicide, my family would be upset. While that might be true, although it's certainly not true in a lot of cases, right? I mean, in a lot of cases, right? If nobody, if, 
yeah. it's 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 not going to be true and it, you know who knows maybe it's not even true in my case i hope uh, i hope it is but uh <laughs> but there'd be, uh, there'd be like a handful of listeners who would be upset <laughs> they'd be like oh, but, but only mildly given how much work like how much suffer like that that that's fairly minimal you would think and if i could take us all out you know if I could take us all out, you know, uh, Phil Hartman style, then, well, I don't know if he did that, actually. He just took his wife and himself out. But, like, no, you no, know, no, those no, people no, who no, kill no. their hold families. On, hold on, hold on, hold on. Phil Hartman got killed by his wife. Oh, yeah. And then she killed herself. Yeah, I, that, I don't remember that. And the kids were in the closet. That's horrible. And that, that's a horrible thing to have happened to you that I don't know if you bounced back from. But, um... But if I could just get gather the people in the room that would be seriously upset by my death and just release some sort of euthanizing gas that put us all to death, I should do that if 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 that if what he's saying is true. But he doesn't urge us to do that. He he I agree with you that his view entails um, the the sort of mass elimination of life. And he agrees to this in the sense that he thinks that when biological life ceases to exist, uh, this will be a good thing. Um, but then, you know, then he says, but I don't think everybody should go, go around killing people. And I think that, that maybe it's just a desire. It, maybe it is just based on this belief that like the, the chances in which you could cleanly kill a bunch of people without causing suffering seems so low um, that maybe he just has some empirical view, but I actually think that this, this is like a he's like a, he could easily be a classic supervillain that wants to like like right. cause the destruction of all life. I I think that he is committed to the view that this is this is like why, like someone in the like Watchmen or something like that. Yeah, right? Exactly. Right. Well, yeah. And in or or even like there are these villains that just you know that offer some something like these arguments that like life is suffering, therefore it should be eliminated. You know, like that. Usually the objection is that it, in fact you're just increasing the misery, right? Um, so I think that that you're right that if he could cleanly eliminate every every conscious being from the world that this would be but just the suicide there's just say for for suicide people get over grief you know like almost too fast sometimes people get over grief so yeah like i I would cause a lot of people a lot of grief but think (laughs) of all the suffering i would save myself it's gotta outweigh the grief that i would cause my family if what he's saying is right like he if he's so confident that the suffering is so overwhelmingly outweighs the well, the pleasure this is where i think the asymmetry part has to play a big role because right. either he's really confident that suffering outweighs tremendously the pleasure that that and this is true for everybody or i think he has to it's a trilemma or he has to admit that for most people they should probably commit suicide. Or he has to put a lot of stake in that asymmetry argument so that once you exist, it's different than before you exist. Well, so this is why I think that his optimism argument works against him here. Because it, what you said that people get over grief and they adapt to it, um, this would actually, I think, this would work in the direction of defeating his argument in the way that you just said. But and this is why I think that his 
his argument that sort of the bad, the suffering outweighs the, the good is the critical part here. Because if you think that that the suffering, so I think that he is committed, I think he explicitly says this, at least in the interview we listened to, that if it is the case, for instance, that uh, your suffering vastly outweighs the pleasure that you're experiencing in life, right? Then, then you can, you might sort of reflectively decide that you want to end your life and that this would be, I think, a reasonable uh, thing to do on his view. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the suffering does, gets right? worse. Like the, so like the more you age, the more you're suffering. And I, I just like, I know people love me, but I, I, you know, if he's right, if his premises are right, I just don't see how that grief would outweigh all this suffering, you know, this continued suffering that I, I will, that's not transparent I, to me, but that I'm experiencing. Right. I, so I think that he is, at the end of the day, he he might be committed to that view, that it really, the calculus does matter. It's just that it's probably hard to do that calculus. And that, like, in some sort of way in which I can't blame him, he is he is trying to be sort of responsible for not like causing people to maybe uh, commit suicide by being sort of bumped over the edge by like this smart guy thinks that it, life isn't worth living or whatever. Well, so this, and, and which is in the end and we should wrap up uh, in the end, why I had such a sort of angry reaction to this when I first saw it um, you know, philosophers make arguments that I think aren't well argued all the time, and I can find them annoying, but I don't react like this because that's just life. That's just, but then there right, are. It doesn't upset you when, like, someone has a poorly constructed Gettier case. <laughs> right, exactly. <laughs> but, like, then there are other times where philosophers will do this, and there's another example uh, Peter Carruthers' argument. He, he has an argument for higher order thought. F- theory which is like a 13 page no empirical evidence argument but at the end he concludes that we you know uh, this is really important because uh you know we currently have people who are against factory farming practices because animals are suffering the conclusion is that animals can't suffer of his argument of his 13 page no empirical evidence uh, (laughs) uh argument higher order thought argument and and so we have to stop caring. And if we care too much about the suffering of animals in this country, given that they can't suffer, that's when I get mad. And in this case, <laughs> I, I, I they, doubt because that it would give caught. rise to actions that you think are. It's like it's one thing when you're playing around with Gettier cases, and it's another thing where you might do something to cause somebody who's already sort of leaning in this direction anyway. Like you said with suicide, like it's another thing. It's it's another thing to 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 have some little philosopher's trick that actually causes somebody. It would be like, you know, let's say you could run a race with somebody that was much slower than you, um, and that would save 10 lives, but but then somebody told you Zeno's paradox that you'll never be able to catch up with them, and so you don't race. <laughs> you just you say, like, well, there's no way I can beat them, so I'm not going to race, you know? Like, those little philosophers' sleight of hands... Uh, if they can have some really bad practical impact, that's what pisses me off. Right. Although, you know, I think that, I mean, there, there, there's two parts to your argument. One is like, if you are just, if, if your argument is completely unsound or just wrong, what you're saying, I guess, is if, if he is right, 
So this is what, like, so if he is absolutely 100% right, do you think that he ought to not say it? Because Well, no, no, no. Okay, right. No, if he's right, he should definitely say it because it'll stop people from having kids. You know, if he's right, that's a tremendously good thing to happen is for people not to have children. Um, so if he's right, he should say it. And I believe that he believes that he's right. I, I don't question his sincerity. So I, what you believe, I, though, is that, that, that it also might entail people reasonably concluding well, yeah, and I don't know. I mean, like, I don't know. My guess is that he's probably never. I don't think he's probably ever bumped anybody over the edge. <laughs> I think, I think, I think we, we might have actually done that more. Right. I think we, yeah, <laughs> both for others and ourselves. <laughs> um, but, you know, here's where, like, maybe to wrap it up, like, I, I think that it's, it's, it's wonderfully cute of you to think that the, the philosopher is in charge. The philosopher should be really disdained for holding a wrong esoteric moral, but but yet I am on a moral high horse for being mad at a senator. Um, You're just naive. It's just so naive. To expect <laughs> it. Yeah. So so I think that um, that he I, he has to be really honestly if he honestly believes that his view in no way requires people to commit suicide, then I think Bravo for him for like you know speaking out on it you know the weird thing is that in that radio interview that we'll post a link to so many of the callers were on his side like yeah well, there is a type of person that's going to be like hell you know everybody that's been trying to get us to do this is in agreement with him <laughs> yeah. if the only conclusion is is to uh to not have kids regardless of how he got there I'm going to take a Tamler stance here. Uh, it doesn't matter whether he arrives there soundly. If he can convince people to not have kids, then this is probably going to be a better world. Just because of overpopulation? Yeah. <laughs> the people who are likely to be swayed by his argument are already vastly li limiting the number of kids that they have <laughs> for other reasons. That's that's okay, right? That, that Like, if... If it gets them from two to one or from one to zero, then that's, I, I think that's. I mean, if he limits the number of German kids. <laughs> this is. I love German people. Uh, I love German porn. This Just a very bad wizard.